Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Pennsylvania is known as an old rust belt state. That's because the state was home to many manufacturing industries like steelmaking. Coal production and coal mining was a large part of the state's heritage as well. But the nation has been trying to reduce its reliance on coal as an energy source for some time now. That has left the economies of large areas of Pennsylvania not very healthy. Both presidential candidates have promised to address those economies that relied on coal. State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick recently traveled to a region where coal it was king at one time, and she's with us today. Marie, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. If you have a question or comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, first of all, where did you travel to? I spent part of the weekend in Greene County, Pennsylvania, which is uh, southwest of Pittsburgh. It's the most southwestern corner of Pennsylvania. Often described as almost West Virginia. It is almost West Virginia. It's right over the border. Mm -hmm. All right. So was that the first time you'd been in Greene County? No, I'd actually uh, been into a coal mine a couple of years ago oh, when a company right. fair that. took me down yeah. underground into a mine. But um, this time I was going out there to talk to folks about the presidential election. All right. So if you were to describe Greene County, what's it look like? I, mean, I know we're talking about a pretty big area, but when you drive into Greene County, what do you notice? Well, the route I took, the way I drove in, actually, there's a huge, massive, shuttered uh, coal power plant. Um, and then I was driving into Carmichael's, Pennsylvania, and the, I was attending their 63rd annual King Coal Festival, which is a week-long festival. Um, so it, and there's still banners, in, you know, in the town that that show a miner and they show a little heart over that a map of Pennsylvania and it says King Coal. So I think um, you know there's rolling hills. It's a you know, small town feel and uh, for a lot of people it you know coal still is king. Mm -hmm. So many people in this part of the state are familiar with northeastern Pennsylvania and anthracite coal. Does it look much the same? The different kinds of coal? Uh, no, I'm not talking about the different. Uh, I mean the different regions. Do they are they are, do they look similar? Um. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. The, this this felt a little more rural than the northeastern Pennsylvania. That mm -hmm. feels a little bit more built up to me. Mm -hmm. But the small towns and that kind of thing. When you, there is a distinct feel in northeastern Pennsylvania when you drive through them, you know, and not every one of them has you know. Uh, empty storefronts and that kind of thing. But you can tell that the economy is not what it once was. Do you get that sense in, in Greene County as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you live, you you know, different parts of Pennsylvania have very different feels. And I live, you know, here in, in this region in Lancaster, and I've, I've seen the city of Lancaster become really revitalized in the past decade or so. But this really feels like it's kind of going the other direction. It definitely feels economically depressed. Now, I'm going to get you to talk a little bit more about uh, the the uh, King Cole Festival in Carmichael's in just a few minutes, because, you know, I'm sure there are stories that come out of that. But let's talk a little bit of background. I mean, one of the reasons we wanted to do, with it, do this today, Marie, is that, you know, the nation has been moving away from coal. Now, you use the word gradually, and I guess gradually is kind of a subjective uh, description. But for some time now, we've known that coal 
is not kind to the environment, and we've been moving away from coal as an energy source. Where are we today? Well, coal has been declining, and it was gradual, and then it really speeded up with the shale gas boom. So coal has a couple problems. Um, Some people in the industry have described it like a perfect storm of problems. Um, We have strength in environmental regulations, And the natural gas boom, like I mentioned, that has really undercut coal. We have had a flood of cheap gas, uh, and that is taking up a larger and larger share of our electric power generation. So, for example, in the early 2000s, we got about half our electricity from coal, and now it's about a third. So it's really dropped off, and, and gas is one of coal's big problems, in addition to environmental regulations. But when I talk to folks out there, they really generally pointed the finger at the federal government and at the EPA and at the environmental regulations. There wasn't, I didn't sense a lot of animosity for the, the gas industry. Really? What, I mean, when you say point the finger, what, what were they saying? They feel like the federal government has let them down and felt like nobody has their back. Um, and, you know, both presidential candidates have said in different ways that they want to help coal miners. I mean, Donald Trump has said, I'll bring coal back. Hillary Clinton very infamously said in March that she would put coal companies out of work and put miners out of work. Uh, but what she's what she followed up and said she apologized for that comment. But really, what she has is a thirty billion dollar plan to try to revitalize coal communities. But there's a lot of skepticism about whether that will actually happen or whether it would really help anybody much. I want to jump around on you here, but uh, getting back to reliance on coal and jobs in the coal industry, uh, what about jobs nowadays? I mean, these were good paying union jobs in these areas of the state. Yeah, absolutely. And Greene County is a historically democratic area because well, a lot of because of the union connections and and it has been shifting right over the years. Um, but no, it is um, it, they can be very well paying jobs. You don't ne- you don't need a college degree necessarily and you can earn six figures, you know, with overtime. So um, these have been family sustaining jobs and people are, you know, very rightly worried about what's going to happen. Even today, are there people, I mean, other than the managers and the owners of coal mines? Yeah, I I sat next to a guy at the, I went to the King Coal Parade in Carmichael's on Saturday afternoon, and I sat next to a guy, he has five kids, and he's a coal miner. And his mother was talking to me, um, you know, she's a grandmother, and she says she voted for Obama in the last election, but she's going to vote for Trump this time because... She's worried about the coal industry. And some people who said they were voting for Trump, you know, there were a lot of Trump signs in people's yard. Um, They said, you know, I don't even know if he can bring coal back, but at least he's going to try. So um, they just feel really let down. And even, you know, Democrats I I talked to who are voting for Clinton, they said both parties have let us down. You know, even if she wants to invest in coal communities now, I mean, something should have been done years ago, decades ago uh, to help to help our economy. As far as the, and we'll get into the presidential candidates in just a moment, but as far as the numbers go, number of coal jobs. Yeah, well, I had the State Department of Labor and Industry pull some figures for me, and they looked back for to the year 2000. And, and in that time frame, I saw that the peak uh, was in 2012. I think we had about 9,700 people working in the coal industry. And then since then, you just see the graph really just drop right off. I think we've lost, since then, we've lost about 3,000 jobs. That's Mm. a lot of jobs. Mm, Absolutely. 
You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick. We're talking about the move away from coal and the impact that it has had on coal mining areas of Pennsylvania. If you have an observation, a question, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook. Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. State Impact Pennsylvania is a collaboration between WITF and WHYY in Philadelphia to cover the Commonwealth's energy economy. To learn more about coal, natural gas, that energy economy, visit WITF.org and click on State Impact Pennsylvania. All right, let's get back to uh, the the King Coal Festival and what you were hearing. I mean, one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this today is, I mean, it's no no big surprise that uh, we are getting away from coal, but we wanted to talk about the presidential candidates because both have addressed it, as you mentioned. Now, let's talk about Donald Trump first. Donald Trump, as is the case many times during this campaign, has not had very many specifics, but he has said that I will bring coal back. Any idea what that means? I think that's about it. Um, You know, and even people I talk to, like I said, who are voting for him, they said even if he can't do it himself, at least he's going to try. At least he's not saying we're going to put put coal miners out of work um so you know i don't really i don't really know what you know he has to back that up because like i said part of coal's problem is market forces it's part of its problem is gas it's not just environmental regulations um but certainly he could he he could do what he he could if he were elected to try to um undo some of the obama administration's environmental initiatives like what well, the clean power plan is is sort of what the, everyone points the finger to, um, which is Obama's major climate initiative. But it's hard to really point the finger at that too much yet because it's tied up in, in federal court right now and hasn't been implemented. Although Pennsylvania kind of has its own idea on that. Well, all the states have, yeah, have sort of said either statewide. Well, anyway. it hasn't it hasn't moved forward yet because it's still in federal right. court. But like right. most of the. Uh, you know, red-leaning states have, have said they're going to stop working on it. Pennsylvania has said they're still going to keep working on it, even though its future is uncertain. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, nothing's really, nothing's been implemented yet. I'm curious, did you hear the term clean coal mentioned at all? No, I didn't. I didn't really hear that. I just heard, I heard what you hear a lot about the election was even people who are voting, you know, voting for Trump or Clinton say they really don't like either of them, that, you know, their choice is the lesser of two evils. They have a lot of fear and doubt about the, you know, Trump's decision making capacity and his judgment. They have a lot of fear and doubt about Hillary's sort of authenticity. They view her, you know, as a liar and a phony. I heard that a lot. So, you know, one guy who is voting for Trump, he said, you know, he hasn't just shot himself in the foot multiple times. He shot himself in the head. So, you know, but, but he's voting for Trump. <laughs> yeah. And the grandmother I talked to who has, you know, the son working in the coal mine and five grandkids, she said, I don't know why I'm voting for him. I'm kind of scared. And, you know, she's just she, sort of shaking her head. 
but two reasons there. But she's worried about the coal industry. The coal industry, and she doesn't she doesn't like she Hillary doesn't Clinton. like Hillary Clinton. Yeah. So, uh, getting back to uh, you know the background, you touched on this just a, a little bit. That Greene County, southwestern Pennsylvania, uh, traditionally has been a Democratic leaning uh, area. But what did you see? What did you notice? Well, it has been it has been slowly shifting red, and I you know going back to the 2000 election was the last time in the presidential race that you know a Democratic candidate won. Al Gore won it by 10 points, um, but then ever since then it's been shifting red, and it was you know neck and neck with uh, you know Bush won over Kerry very slightly, um, and then as as we go forward, I mean even in the last election in 2012, Obama still won 40 percent of the vote there. So um, you know you drive around now and it's a lot of Trump signs and, you know, it feels very, very red, but actually it has, it has a history. It is quite, it quite divided um, between Democrat and Republican. You know, we use terms over the years like Reagan Democrats. Uh, I guess that we could call the people you're describing as uh, Trump Democrats. Almost. I don't, you know, I think it just, the narrative we've all been hearing is he's an outsider and he appeals to people's frustrations with the government. And, even the you know the chairman of the county commissioners Blair Zimmerman who's a democrat he told me both parties have let us down over the years both parties have failed to address these issues you know the writing has been on the wall for years with the coal industry and you know Washington has has let them down so it's understandable i think you know when people talk about wanting a change that's what trump represents for a lot of people a big change all right so let's move on to hillary clinton as uh you you had uh, described uh, hillary clinton she did say back in march uh, that she wants to put miners out of work not a good choice of words then she said that she has a 30 billion dollar plan to reinvest in coal communities talk a little bit about that plan yeah, well, you know, she she kind of made this big gaffe that she then apologized for and sat down with a coal miner and said that's not what she meant. But, I mean, I think what she meant is, like, whether it's her policies or just the world at large, you know, things are changing for coal. And um, so she has this plan to reinvest in, in coal communities and, and pump a lot of money in and, and retrain people. Um, but, you know, actually, the New York Times had a very interesting story on Sunday about this. They went, they did a similar story and went to... Virginia to talk about the tobacco industry, which was also, you know, had major problems when, you know, the the bottom fell out of, of cigarettes and people smoking and the, the government settlement. So they, it, there was this piece about how it makes sense that people in coal communities are distrustful of the, these big reinvestment dollars because, you know, frankly, the tobacco money didn't really do much for people. It didn't help them that much. So there's a lot of skepticism about, okay, if she gets elected and and if she gets, you know, her $30 billion plan as proposed, really, is it is it going to be enough or is it going to really happen? Um, you know, you can't just pump money. I think you can't just pump dollars into a community that's based on just solely, you know, an extracted resource or a few extracted resources, you know, like the, the county commissioner, Blair Zimmerman, was telling me they, they want to try to create a more diverse economy and not have all their eggs in, in you know, one fossil fuel basket. Mm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
We're talking with State Impact Pennsylvania's Marie Cusick about the move away from coal and how the areas that mined coal and relied on it economically and really that was their lifeblood, uh, how they've had to change, how they've had to make changes. And really, they, many of these areas haven't had, haven't made those changes. Our, uh, we're taking your phone calls, I should say, at 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a comment or, or a question on WITS Facebook page. Again, 1-800-729-7532. Marie, before we take phone calls, because we do have a, a couple people on hold, um, what are many of the people, what industries are the people who used to be in coal mining? Well, I think if you can go back to that that New York Times article, maybe there's a good example there of those who worked in the tobacco industry. There were coal miners there. And I think we see this in a lot of uh, former coal mining area states. But the jobs they've gotten aren't as high paying. What are they doing? Well, in that Times piece, they talked about bringing um, more broadband internet to the area and getting some call centers. But okay, fine, you'd get a few call centers. Or even if you get one big manufacturing plant, um, that's what the county commissioner was talking to me about. They want to get manufacturing. That's great. But I mean, can you replace all those high paying jobs? Maybe not necessarily. Or maybe the people need different skills. So you need to retrain them. Um, you know, one of the guys I talked to, he was a former coal miner, ex-Marine, um, and he said he saw the writing on the wall of the coal industry. So he got out a few years ago, and he's using the GI Bill to go back to college. And he said he really wishes that all coal miners would have such an opportunity, something like the GI Bill, where they could go back to school and be retrained. So, you know, it, it really depends. You just, I think, to have a sustainable economy economy you need a diverse economy you can't just have a big a few big manufacturing plants or extractive industries and again before i take these phone calls i want to mention uh, you know talk a little bit about hillary clinton's plan the 30 billion dollar plan what is she talking about retraining is a big part of that yeah right? you know pumping money into these economies to try to retrain people try to attract new businesses i mean broadband internet Again, they bring that up because a lot of the new jobs or new economy relies on internet connectivity, and many of these rural places aren't very connected. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's take some phone calls now. Let's go to uh, Bill in Lancaster. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, Scott. Hi, Bill. Uh, I've been listening to this, and uh, coal was big back when Teddy Roosevelt was president, and we had the Great White Fleet. But unfortunately, it has gone the way of the Great White Fleet in the 40s, the slide of coal began when the railroads started transitioning from steam locomotives to diesels. And in the late 50s and early 60s, when pollution began to be a problem, it started a greater acceleration away from coal, which came to the peak in the 70s and 80s, and now in the 90s. And there's no good answer to this, but, you know, the 40s is 70 years ago. There's been a lot of time around when people could have, should have acclimated to the fact that they were in a slide. But now we've got Donald Trump, who sounds like a uh, demagogue pandering to the buggy whip manufacturers, complaining about lack of jobs in 1935. So you 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 you're not a uh, uh, you're not on board with uh, the promises that uh, Trump has made as far as bringing coal back. 
There's no way you can bring coal back. It's just too dirty a fuel, and it costs too much to clean it up. And there are other fuels around, plus conservation and the alternate sources of energy available now. There's a use for coal in the metallurgy industry still, but that's not nearly as much as powering the homes and the railroads and the, all the buildings and everything around. Mm. All right, Bill, thank you very much for your call. I'm, I'm curious, uh, Marie, following up on Bill's call, did any people in Greene County use the word demagogue? Uh, or You did say they were no, skeptical. No, I heard, I heard buffoon. I heard idiot. I heard some other names. But they're still <laughs> voting for them. Um, no, some well, those people weren't voting for them. Um, <laughs> I was surprised at the number of Clinton supporters I met. I thought, given the yard signs and given the, the red shift of the county, I thought I'd meet more Trump supporters. But I did meet, a, you know, both. And there's a question here. I don't know whether you could answer, Marie. And, you know, we always I always tell our, our guests coming on the air is even people as knowledgeable about as Marie Cusick, that if there's something you don't know, just say so. Uh, we had a caller wanted to know if you had any idea where the third party candidates uh, are on coal. I haven't I haven't looked into their position. Jill Stein, Green Party, and uh, Gary Johnson, Libertarian. I Party. guess it'll be interesting to see how well they do. Um, you know, but no, I haven't looked into their position. Gary's in Juniana County. Gary, you're on the air. Yeah, I want to echo Bill's comments. Um, you know, we used to always have sewing factories. I think Newport had a couple. Millerstown had a big, huge uh, mill or factory or whatever for sewing and fabrics and Richfield and all these little tiny towns, and I'm sure any towns along the river had so They're not here anymore. Things change, and people have to understand. When you look at Pittsburgh's air in, like Bill said, like the 50s and 60s, even, I don't know, you're younger than I am, but I'm just saying, you, you couldn't see Pittsburgh. So, you know, people that think that coal is, is coming back are just foolish. The ash from coal is so full of heavy metals, and you have to understand when these uh, power plants burn coal, almost half of the coal that's burned comes out as ash. So they have, let's say they burn a million tons. They've got half a million tons of ash to either store or get rid of. The rain hits that. It seeps down in the groundwater. Ask Mississippi right now with the lawsuits and whatever that people are filing because their groundwater is polluted. And the one scientist they hired that you know came out and did this expose and whatever, they fired him because he came out against coal. So, you know, there's always this problem where people don't want to – See the writing on the wall, and it, it is difficult. There's no question it's difficult, but Bill is absolutely right. Coal is never coming back as far as a, a major um, product for, for powering anything. But thank you very much. Hey, Gary, thank you very much for coming. Yeah, and I think I think what's important to note and what a few people told me is that throughout the years, people living in these areas who work in the coal industry, they've seen booms and busts, and they've had layoffs um, periodically. But they've always felt like, okay, well, it'll come back. And they often have gotten rehired. And it was just a sort of, you know, the ups and the downs. And so now to try to acknowledge that there is a real true shift going on in the economy and environmental regulations, I think it's really hard for people who've seen ups and downs that maybe this isn't just another down. You know, I asked this question earlier, and you said that you didn't hear this from uh, the people at the King Coal Festival about uh, clean coal. Um, 
you know, I guess it doesn't surprise me that that's not something that people who work in coal mines or, you know, regular people on the street talk about a lot. But it is something that the industry talks about a lot. And uh, Marie, maybe you can explain what clean coal is and or at least how it's what it you know, they they talk about, uh, uh, you know, pumping uh, everything into the ground and reusing and all that. Well, there's no question that coal has gotten a lot cleaner, and there's been a lot of investment in cleaning it up. Um, but uh, as some of the callers noted, there's there's just a real shift going on. And, you know, we've all saw the Paris Climate Agreement in December of last year. The world is, is trying to pivot away towards a lower carbon energy sources, whatever that is, whether, you know, gas just undercuts coal in many ways, and it's doing so with, you know, it's cheaper and it's less carbon intensive. Renewables are growing a lot. So, you know, you're just, no matter how much you clean it up, uh, you're not, you're not going to get it to be, you know, zero, it's not going to be a zero carbon fuel. It's very, you know, it's full of greenhouse gases and pollution. So that's but, just what it is. But what you're describing when you said there have been efforts to clean it up, that's usually on the emissions and uh, what I was describing is sequestration. Carbon where, capture and sequestration. Right, where they actually, and it doesn't exist yet. This is something that uh, is there. That hasn't really been demonstrated to be economical. It, it, so that's well, not... and that's one of the reasons that we haven't seen it yet, but where the emissions are actually pumped into the ground. Right. Is that the best way to describe it? Yeah, but okay. that's not really a, a reality yet or okay. perhaps ever. So do you have any other stories from the King Cole Festival? By the way, did you take the whole family to the King Cole Festival? Or was it just a working <laughs> thing? It was just me. Oh, man, yeah. you should have had the family uh, there. Yeah, there were a lot of families. You Parades, know, everything. Everyone, it, it looked like, you know, a lot of people from the town were out on the street. I, I got there an hour before it started, and actually I ran into a group of guys on the corner literally arguing about the election. There was uh, two white guys and an African-American guy, and... and um, they were shouting about the election and why Trump won't release his tax returns. And, you know, I went up and talked to them and they were all friendly. But um, I said, do you guys know each other? And they're like, no, they were just having, a, really? you, know, you know, strangers in, in the town meeting and having an impromptu argument about the race. See, um, I kind of like that, though. <laughs> I mean, at le that's at least an example of Americans talking about it. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were polite. I mean, they it was getting a little heated, but um Another person I met who was interesting is every year they, they crown a coal queen. Um, so I missed the ceremony because that was a few days before I got there. But I met the coal queen. And she's 17 years old, so she can't vote in the election. But, you know, I asked her about how she felt about it. And she, you know, she didn't want to get into politics too much. But she instantly, you know, started telling me about how important coal is and felt, you know, felt like she was very well rehearsed in, in saying that. And I said, you know, as a 17-year-old in the year 2016, do you really feel like, can you stay here? Is coal a viable industry? And she said, you know, she doesn't know what she wants to do, but she's thinking about moving away and perhaps pursuing a career in acting. So who knows? Coal queen to acting. So, you know, it's, I guess it's not a large jump. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you know that, that New York Times story you, you uh, re referenced 
where many of the people that they talked to used to be tobacco farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, there were a couple uh, experts who were quoted in that story. And when you said that about moving away, that was one of the things that uh, was recommended. It just if you want a, a high paying job in some of these areas, some in some cases, unless it changes, you have no choice. You have to move away. Yeah, and that's a really tough choice and decision for people because, you know, if your family's from there, generations from there, that's your home. I, I can understand why it would be a really hard Absolutely. thing, a hard decision to make. Mm. Hey, real quick before uh, you, you, you run, you did a story a couple weeks ago. Uh, the federal government released a report about uh, natural gas emissions. We're, we've been talking about coal, how dirty it is. But uh, you, carbon emissions, carbon emissions, carbon dioxide. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Talk about that, because that probably surprises some people. Yeah, I thought it was surprising because um, coal, uh, you know, as fossil fuels go, nat- natural gas is much cleaner than coal. When you burn it, it releases about half the carbon dioxide that coal does. So this this report was saying that actually uh, they're projecting that natural gas carbon emissions will surpass those from coal, um, which is surprising because it is cleaner. Um, and really, it's just because, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Americans are just using a lot more natural gas. Uh, coal has gone from being about half our producing about half our electricity in the early 2000s to now it's it's shrunk to about a third. And frankly, King Coal is very rapidly being dethroned by natural gas. Mm. Marie Cusick, who is a State Impact Pennsylvania reporter. Marie, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. And I should also mention that uh, since we were talking about uh, the presidential campaigns, the WITF's election coverage is supported by the Harrisburg office of the law firm of Saul Ewing LLP. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The city of Lancaster School District has about 11,500 students. More than 500 of them are refugees from other countries. Most of them are enrolled at McCaskey High School's International School as a quality English as a second language program. Six student refugees who were sent to another school sued and a court ruled in their favor late last week. To talk more about it with us today is Keystone Crossroads reporter Emily Previty. Emily, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Thanks for having me. We talked about this just a few weeks ago because it is an important thing. We'll talk about why it is important. But this ruling that came down Friday night, uh, what did it say? So basically the court um, ordered the school district to enroll student refugees who were at Phoenix to offer them. um, Phoenix, okay. We'll have to explain that in a little bit. But this alternative school. Sure. So to maybe I should explain that first. Yeah. Uh, so this, the students who sued the school district were enrolled at a magnet school with an accelerated program that doesn't have as much English as a second language support. And they testified, all of them, that they couldn't understand. They, they didn't understand uh, most of what was going on in class throughout the day. One of them Um, completed all four grade levels in high school within the space of 16 months. Um, They, so these were some of the things that the, the plaintiffs uh, and and their attorneys tried to show to convince the court that they were being denied equal access uh, to education because the district has a program for students with limited English proficiency, um, those with the least proficiency for the first year 
um, or, or less if they test out sooner, um, go to what's called the international school, where they get two hours of intensive ESL instruction every day. And throughout the rest of the day, they move together through the object, other uh, subject area classes as one group, as one cohort, as one class, um, so that they're not mixed in with native speakers or students who are much more proficient and, and the pacing um, can, can be appropriate for everybody who's in that class together. And so that, that's what they were seeking. They wanted to, to get out of the, the magnet school, um, the alternative school, and into this, this program on the main campus of, of McCaskey. And it is good to uh, provide some background information so everyone knows where we're coming from. But the, this Phoenix Academy not only uh, did the, the six students who sued say that it did not have as good a uh, English as second language, it was not set up. But this is also uh, the, the, the students who are enrolled there normally at Phoenix Academy, what are they there for? So they're there because they're behind in terms of credits earned toward graduation for their relative age and are at risk for aging out, which means you know turning 22 basically until you're 21 until the end of that school year in Pennsylvania you're entitled to a free and public free public education or dropping out because of life circumstances um, you know frustration whatever so it's an accelerated credit program for those students um, there may be co-occurring behavioral issues but disciplinary it's not disciplinary reasons are not the main reason that someone would be at Phoenix there's another school um, where that's more of the focus, behavior modification, and that is not that is not Phoenix. Now, just what you uh, described about that constitutional right, uh, that was the basis for this lawsuit, correct? Sure, the age thing, um, and then also the Equal Education Opportunity Act does require schools to um, take appropriate steps to overcome language barriers that students might might face to facilitate that equal access to a meaningful education. And that was a lot of time was spent in court showing that that wasn't happening at Phoenix. One, the students testifying that they didn't understand much of what was happening in class um, and the fact that they needed a, a interpreters in court demonstrated that they had pretty low levels of English proficiency still after being in school for, for a while, um, which, by the way, one of the things that kept on coming up um, during the court proceedings was that it generally takes seven to ten years to get some kind of functional mastery of the English language, and I, I did not realize that it took that long. Um, and, and so another thing that came up regarding whether appropriate steps were being taken um, to, to provide, you know, to overcome language barriers was whether um, the school district was assessing the effectiveness of the program that they have at Phoenix. So at Phoenix, you get 80 minutes of direct ESL instruction every day versus the two hours at McCaskey's International School. And for the rest of the day, you're mixed in, uh, a student is mixed in with all levels of English proficiency. So native speakers, um, students who are more proficient. And let's just say that that was effective. There's no way that anyone can demonstrate that because they're not evaluating standardized test scores or anything else to show the differences or to compare the two. So the district 
couldn't prove that it was effective and the the judge seemed to think that it you know he he was being shown that it wasn't <clears throat> again just for background purposes uh, uh what countries did these uh, six students come from it wasn't just one nation was it no um so one student was from um Somalia, another from Sudan. Uh, there were two sisters from Burma and uh, a set of brothers from uh, Tanzania. So, so uh, most school districts. So, if you look at the the uh, international population in most school districts in Pennsylvania, it's largely Latino. Um, so, uh, probably most of the students, English as a second language, would be their native language is Spanish and they're learning English. Do school districts by law have to, if they have like one or two students in a language, have to uh, provide a teacher in that area that speaks that language? No, they don't. Um, and really, the requirements under state law are pretty flexible. So, for instance, it is, well, and we'll see what kind of bearing this court ruling has, something that PDE hasn't commented on, but may. They said they were viewing it. Pennsylvania Department of Education. Um, there are guidelines. So the guidelines are two to three hours for the least proficient students of direct ESL every day. Um, but that's not a requirement. It's guidelines based on best practices, and the implementation is supposed to take that into consideration, but also district resources. So there isn't even a very hard and fast requirement for how much time you have of direct English as a second language instruction you have to spend on these students, much less one or two kids, you know, speaking a, a language. You don't have to hire someone, full a full-time teacher to accommodate them. However, you do have to make some accommodations to communicate meaningfully with parents, such as translating documents, which wasn't always happening here having a, a translator present at meetings about important things like enrollment, which wasn't happening here, or, um, or, or or dropping out, another thing that didn't happen. And so that can be facilitated through hiring someone or through using Language Line, which is a call-in service. And the school district testified that many times students are coming with resettlement caseworkers or others who can translate for them. But there were times where there was miscommunication because there weren't, there was an interpretation happening at, at key times. And it, it led to, in some cases, enrollment delays or denials that weren't meant to be denials, uh, misinterpretations of what the students' goals and interests were, um, things along those lines. Mm. Uh, you know, a big word that you used, uh, big meaning the significance of it was resources. Uh, many of the school districts where uh, international students have, uh, you know, have settled uh, are in our urban districts. And often those districts do not have the kind of resources that uh, others do. I mean, put it this way, they have the resources, but they are dealing with a lot of different issues. Sure. Is that something that came up in the court case? You know what? It didn't. Um, really, very much, as much as you might expect, considering that Lancaster is one of the districts that's party to the you know fair funding lawsuit. Um, interestingly, the same law firm that's representing them, the Education Law Center in that district, different attorneys, but the, the same firm is in, was involved in pursuing this case against the district. Um, 
it's kind of a side note. There was no <laughs> conflict. Everybody checked with everybody's attorneys and figured there was no conflict, but I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, and the superintendent has been quoted in, in Lancaster Online as saying, we have nothing left to cut. That's been, and we're, we know we don't want to charge students for extracurriculars. We don't want th them to be discouraged from pursuing things like that because we don't have any money. Um, so, yeah, I think that's key. Uh, someone who I who I know, who I run with, um, is a teacher at a school district in Lancaster County, and she heard our first smart talk, was very interested in talking about the case, and talked about her district and how they have paraeducators and tons of support for children who aren't proficient in English. And I mean, and I said, well, isn't that district like a lot more affluent than, than, than the you know Lancaster City? And she said, oh, yeah, and that's why. So that's a factor. But this, the district is still obligated to support these students. Um, and they already have a program in place that's better than what's at Phoenix, more appropriate, we should say, for for them. Um, and part of the re the reason why they were making that decision to enroll them at Phoenix rather than at the international school was, and again, remember the, the age range, between 17 or older, they were the students for whom this decision was being made, the diversion to Phoenix. Um, there's a concern there about them not graduating by the time they're 21. And the superintendent and other administrators testified to how critical a high school diploma is to someone having any hope of getting a job that pays a living wage, um, and then related factors like healthcare and things along those lines, um, just that being really critical. But also, and this is a direct quote from the superintendent, they don't want to be known as a dropout factory. That's a reputational thing. And evaluations and some funding are partly based on graduation rate as well. So, yes, resources, but with the resources they have, the district does have this better program. It seemed that it was more concerned about timely graduation before the age of 21 within four years, um, not only because it would count against the district's graduation rate, four-year graduation rate, but also because these students leaving um, high school without a diploma, you know, they would really be limited as to how productive they, they could be as members of the community, how stable their, their life might be. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. Our guest during this portion of the program is Keystone Crossroads reporter Emily Previty. We're talking about a lawsuit uh, against the city of Lancaster School District that uh, was there was a ruling that came down late last week have to do with um, uh, international students, refugee students, and where they should be educated. Uh, if you have a question or comment, 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. You also can send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. Leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that's 1-800-729-7532. Keystone Crossroads is a statewide initiative reporting on the challenges facing Pennsylvania cities. WITF is part of this collaboration with three other public media organizations. To learn more, visit WITF.org and click on Keystone Crossroads. It's supported regionally by the law firm of McNeese, Wallace & Newark. We're going to talk uh, uh, with a caller here in just a moment, but I want to 
point this out, uh, Emily, because this is not just a local Lancaster City, Lancaster County issue. This is an important case, and there are a lot of people across the state, maybe across the country, watching this case. Why? So there are similar cases that have been filed in other states, but this was the first one to go to trial. Um, and there, there have been uh, lawsuits filed in, in the past, probably for decades, about equal access to education and language barriers. Um, but these were spe- are specific to refugees, um, the, the recent ones that we're talking about, federal lawsuits filed in the past year or so. And resettlement is something that's expected to continue at or above current levels, you know, based on what we're being told today. And so the funding that's intended to be an offset for the educational impact, the costs and, and stuff like that on a community, that has been the same since 2002. So that amount dispersed nationally has not changed in 14 years. There are more people being resettled now than there were then. So th- that's that's part of it. Um, also, as we said, state law is somewhat ambiguous when it comes to hard and fast requirements for what school districts must do to support students with limited English proficiency. And this makes that a little bit clearer, potentially, um, if if schools or attorneys are looking to this for guidance. Um, It's not necessarily binding, but it would be, well, I guess it would depend on the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, um, this brings a little clarity to a situation that may exist elsewhere. Um, the ACLU of Pennsylvania has said they've received a couple of phone calls um, from Im- Im- uh, immigration advocacy groups uh, saying, wanting to learn more, saying we're kind of seeing this. So some rumblings, but nothing concrete as far as it happening elsewhere. Uh, there was, but to show you that this is of national interest, there's a, a woman, another journalist who's a, a Spencer fellow at Columbia who heard about the case, came to the trial. It lasted through the first week and she she canceled a, a trip a reporting trip that she had scheduled to Arizona to like to stay to see what happened and is planning on on using this uh in part of uh, you know a longer term article in a book she's working on so that just to sort of put that in perspective yeah. and by the way we didn't mention that this was a federal court case it was right. not on the on the state level yeah. it was a federal court case all right let's take some phone calls uh Hillary is in Lancaster Hillary you're on the air Yes, thank you, and I'd like to compliment um, the reporting on this. This has been excellent. I am a certified uh, ESL teacher in Pennsylvania and also an ELL teacher, English language learner teacher, where I was teaching for the past three years in Loudoun County, Virginia. I had the opportunity to be a substitute at both Phoenix Academy and McCaskey High School for ELL, and or ESL, as they say here in Pennsylvania, and I can say that there was quite a difference between the two programs. I'd also like to mention that the quality of ELL support in Virginia for refugees is far superior to what I've seen here in Pennsylvania, and I'd also like to interject and ask your um, your commentator if you don't think that there is a connection between the amount of poverty, the economics, and the health issues that these children or these students are bringing to the public school system that need to be addressed, hey, i.e. a great article in yesterday's LNP about inequalities in Lancaster County. 
Maybe we need to look at some consolidation of schools to better meet the needs of these students. Well, Hillary, be, you. before you go, mm-hmm. before you go, Hillary, I have a couple of questions for you, sure. for you before Emily uh, answers. Uh, you say you did see a difference between Phoenix and McCaskey. What was that difference? Um, it was. The Phoenix Academy was very restrictive, and there were many challenged students there. Um, Some of them did not have the academic potential that some of the ELL students had there. And the time frame I was there, um, there wasn't a consistency of um, instruction for the ELL teacher there at Phoenix. There were some changes going on and some high absenteeism. So... There wasn't uh, what's really needed for these beginning students. There wasn't that um, bonding and support that's so essential to um, people beginning a language even at their age. Um, Absolutely what I read in the newspaper was correct, being frisk even when I entered, you know, (laughs) making sure that I wasn't carrying any weapons or uh, so forth. very restraining environment and not as supportive as it is at McCaskey, although I will say that compared to the high schools in Virginia that have 120 different languages, still McCaskey is a very challenging high school. All right, well, that was my second question, is when you say that Virginia was superior to Pennsylvania in ESL, in what ways? Um, Some of the things that Emily has addressed the um, translation issues, um, the support from social workers, um, the uh, use of paraprofessionals um, uh, as support mechanisms, the use of technology for um, programs that help um, students learn a language um, more rapidly, a more comprehensive supporting system for the WIDA program um, that does the main um, assessment part of finding out the levels where students enter. And a, just a different type of a, although I will say that the religious groups in Lancaster do a great job here, and there are many committed community people, a different kind of a feeling about cultural differences and community support, much more of an openness um, um, and because it's one county, Loudoun County, um, and I think the, also the economic issues play a major um, part in how um, kids pass through the system who speak a different language. Yeah, Loudoun County, probably one of the fastest-growing counties in the country and fairly well-to-do as a Washington uh, suburb. Hey, Hillary, I'm almost out of time. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, I don't know if you can address her uh, issue about health and background. Is there anything that uh, you can you can say on that? I mean, I would just say that, you know, talking about religious groups in the community in Lancaster and the support there is they do have a program it's based at a middle school one of the criticisms more of this is focused on younger children however this is open to the whole family it's reynolds middle school has a walk and health clinic um esl support for any person in the family and, and tutoring so that is recognized and addressed through community uh partnerships with the school district uh so I mean, that's really all about I could say as to the need to consolidate school districts. That's sort of out of my realm for this particular story. Emily, we have about 30 seconds left, and I know this is hard to do in 30 seconds, but what's next? <laughs> so the 
Um, the refugees who were represented in this case are being offered enrollment at McCaskey. Other refugees currently enrolled at Phoenix are being offered a transfer if that's what they would like. Some of the other uh, things the lawsuit was seeking that weren't addressed in the judge's ruling, they're going to attempt to work out with the district out of court within the next month. And if they can't do that, then another judge will pick those up. That would include um, putting, monitoring the progress of com you know, compliance with some of the laws and stuff like that. Emily Previty, WITF's Keystone Crossroads reporter. Emily, thank you very much for your work. Thank you. Tomorrow, Millersville University President John Anderson.